welcome to Live Bullions. Thank you. Uh, we're joined this week by uh, with Sorcha. So, Sorcha. Sorcha. With Serica. You practiced it and everything. I Sarah. screwed it up. <laughs> with Serica. Um, You're lucky I don't mind. It's fine. <laughs> who's a yeah. producer at Infinity Plus 2 working on games such as Puzzle Quest 3. Uh, thank you for joining us, Serica. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here. Looking forward to having a chat about game dev. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So we always start our guests off with just just giving a bit of a brief as to how you got involved in in game development and video games. So, yeah, I noticed you have a couple of different roles, uh, you know, in different um, game development companies. But yeah, would love to hear how you got involved and uh, yeah, how how it came about. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say that I studied it at uni and then picked up my dream job as a game designer <laughs> and <laughs> was off and away. But I think I had a bit of a weird like a, a diagonal path. It wasn't quite sideways, um, which is lucky, I guess. I started off a long time ago at doing, well, not too long now, really, um, Minecraft. I used to be a moderator and a player support for a bunch of maps on the marketplace. And um, with a team called the Nox Crew as well, I ended up becoming a community manager. And those guys are a team of, I think, 50 now and they've worked with um, Microsoft on the Minecraft marketplace so they'd run a bunch of communities and hubs and servers and things like that so I'd help them with their community management and setting up the servers, social media, kind of recruiting people to join and everything like that and they'd run a YouTube channel too. So I kind of built up a number of years there working with them and having a bit of fun just doing things for the sake of the, the joy of it really which is good. And um, I decided to move to Melbourne, as many people do from the country, <laughs> trying to get out of the middle of nowhere. And um, there was a really cool job at um, Electronic Arts. So I thought, oh, yep, I'll give that a shot. Why not? And I became a player support lead. So that was the main, at that point, that was the full-time job that really got me in the door at that time. And I was able to like, get my career kick-started from there. Prior to that, it had been a bit of volunteer, a little bit of paid work here and there, but, you know, nothing concrete, 40 hours a week. And what was it sort of like stepping into uh, the role there at EA, like coming from not, you know, being uh, directly in, in games? How was it sort of, well, like not in game development side of things, but how, mm. how was it sort of getting into that and, um, yeah, getting being a part of that team? Pretty cool. Because <laughs> I think it was actually... Um, I was lucky because the team that I worked with at EA were global. So we worked with the dev team and then we worked with people remotely um, across the US as well. And that was great because working with online communities, you're working with people in Europe or America. It could be on the other side of the globe and you're up till weird hours of the night anyway. So working remotely or like with global teams was probably the one thing that was similar. Um, but I think it was a big difference because you're going from a little, I guess they'd be called double A now, but going from indie to triple A's is a big difference. <laughs> it's a mm, well-oiled yeah. machine and there's a lot of people doing niche roles with specific parts and there's a lot of process to go through and sort of methods that you have to follow as well. Mm, and and you, you studied, uh, I noticed on, on LinkedIn, and we've spoken about this before, but you, you studied UX. Um, what's sort of what do you see as the crossover between that and and now because now you're working in a producer role yeah 
Um, yeah, how have you seen that sort of uh, knowledge and learnings feed in? Um, it's quite similar, I think. You wouldn't put it directly, like you wouldn't go, oh yeah, UX, production, they're not, I mean, they're not one for one. But I think the beauty of being a producer is that you get to work with so many different disciplines and you have to talk the talk a lot of the time. So talk the, talk the talk and then walk the talk as well. So if you actually know the discipline that you're talking to, what is involved with what they're doing and how their work actually functions, it gives you a lot of leverage. Um, but more importantly, a lot of trust with people too, because they're willing to listen to you and they know that you know what you're actually talking mm -hmm. about and how long things are going to take. So it gave me that background when actually working with artists to understand like the process that they're going through at each step, how to provide feedback or how long things might actually take and the ability to review work and go, okay, here's where the quality is good, here's where we can change and here's where it's actually safe to push. So that's like one thing I think, no matter what your degree is, you could probably integrate it in some way as a producer. Mm -hmm. But I think the other part of it is um, thinking about UX in terms of the, the more service design or the systems thinking mm -hmm. side. And that's a whole topic in itself, but how yeah. that applies to game dev as a, well, games as a service and an experience of something that changes over time. Definitely want to yeah touch on that later. Um, what what's your kind of day to day look like as a as a producer? What's you know what 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 are you um, what are you dealing with on a, on a day to day you basis? Can't ask a producer that question. <laughs> 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 Changes all the time, <laughs> um, which I think is one of the things I love about the job because it is so different every day and everything will change. Mm. Um, a typical day, I suppose, is is a lot of communications, um, planning problem solving and organization. That's a really broad way to put it. That'd be a mm. good like slogan for a job ad. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> sorry. No, 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 sorry, keep going. Cause I was, my question was gonna completely go in a different direction <laughs> to do with that. Um, yeah, I mean, in, I guess in the more detail, it's like a lot of it is talking to people, but you might also spend, yeah, sure, time in meetings, but time actually planning, like how are we gonna do the work? How long does that take? Um, what tools are we going to use to get there? And depending on the day, you might be reviewing work as well or mm. playing the game and going, here's where we can improve or working with people hands-on. Um, yeah, it, it does depend on the day for that reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you, And with uh, Costa's question of the day-to-day, the -day, did, did it, I imagine it would have it changed pre-pandemic and post continuing pandemic even if you're working remote because i guess the rest of the team now works from oh sorry well that's ea uh wait sorry sorry <laughs> so many then. questions come back <laughs> so infinity plus yep. two um was that is that a remote was that a remote job before pandemic no no <laughs> no and then it became yeah. a remote it, it one? is yeah i mean um melbourne's a bit underwater with covid at the moment so we're still yeah. remote <laughs> um, yeah yeah it it has changed and i think a lot of game dev studios have really struggled with that and working out how to bring everyone together. Some have flourished under it, and I think as an industry, we're lucky that we can do our jobs from home. That's very lucky. Um, but it was a struggle, and I think how that has changed is you would think about a lot of the things that you do as a small team um, or an indie studio. It's very hands-on. You're talking to people all the time walking up to their desk and like, hey, have you tried doing this? How would I go about X? And you're talking to them face mm. to face and pointing at things on the screen. <laughs> and you can't yeah. do that on Slack. 
Yeah. It's, yeah, I was going to say, how do you how do you do how do you do that on Slack? Is it just like a hundred messages and then please get back to me? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's the yeah. um the bad end of it. Like when you're organizing it well, it's um, a Slack huddle or a meeting or mm. drawing on the screen, a whiteboard. Mm. You, I think, work out a lot of different ways to replace that communication that you did previously and mm -hmm. work it out online. Mm -hmm. And do you find the, the, the team receptive to those, um, those you know, efforts to get people to join together again? Um, I think it depends on the people involved as well because everyone's different. And mm. I think giving people the context of change and why it's important is really hard. Um, especially as a producer, you need to make a lot of changes. And sometimes when you're just trying to work and get things done, it's it's tricky to see like the broader picture of that. Whereas as a producer, you're like, oh, okay, if we set our channels up like that and talk like this, it's going to be great. But if you're, you know, mm. someone working on the project, you just want to kind of work and message people like mm. it. You can't really put it into the context. So it's been fine, but I think you really need to remember... Um, the broader, like when you're talking to people, explaining why it's important to do things and giving the picture of the outcome and what's involved. Mm, mm. For sure. And you, you started at Infinity Plus 2, again, just looking at your LinkedIn, um, as a customer experience manager. Yeah. How, like, what was, what was that role like? And then how did, how did that sort of feed into um, the being, then becoming a producer? Yeah, um, it was a role a little bit like a player support lead. Excuse me. <laughs> so, as a customer experience or player experience manager, you're, you or I, we <laughs> are accountable for um, sort of managing the live service components of players in terms of what are the key issues they're facing, what are the quality of life things that we can improve, how happy is everyone, and then dealing with the you know escalated tickets. But the similarities there to production is that you're doing a lot of process and management. So how can we make things more efficient? Um, what is it like to be a player in this perspective? So you get the player mindset, which is really important, I think, in production mm -hmm. and game dev especially overall. But also that ability to think in a, a problem-solving way and analyse what's going wrong or not and how to do it differently. Mm. Yeah, that's and that's and you're right. Like you, you're going from listening to literally what every customer is saying, or you know, <laughs> what like what they like or don't like about the game, and then producer, you're going into the role of listening and speaking with the team as well. But you've also got that mm. that um, that ear in from the customer. So yeah, that's that's really awesome. I think um, the skills are similar. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And and so you mentioned service design earlier, and I saw an article I'd come across um, a while back on um, applying services on principles yeah. to uh, to game development. And I saw that the, the author, Steve Bromley, actually mentioned that it was a, through a discussion with you that yeah. um, uh, he came up with uh, this or wanted to write something on it. So, um, yeah, how do you feel, you know, this is a big topic, but how do you feel <laughs> sort of service design principles and, and that thought that systems thinking um, applies to mm. uh, producing and also to game development? It's a, it is a big topic, but it's a good one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> mm. um, in a number of ways. I think it's interesting because as a producer, we are in a very similar role to what you'd call a service designer working in a role of like say government or um, 
not-for-profit in other industries. So they're dealing with the experience of how people are going about their days or um, a service that they're going through. And a game is very similar, where they'd be looking at the different touch points, like maybe they're looking at the app that they're looking at the app from or um, how they're interacting with the customer service. It's the same thing in a game. As a game designer, you're designing the experience for players and you're catering it for them to feel certain things. And as a service designer, you're designing the experience for people mm -hmm. doing whatever they're doing. So in both roles, you have the accountability of needing to think about the system as a whole. So as a producer, what are the game team doing? Um, what do the players want and how can we meet those needs? As a service designer, what can I do to change the organisation to change the app to meet the need of the person? So you're going about the same thinking, and I think that's the key similarity. The method mm -hmm. and the framework and the thinking involved, and also the skills. The one mm -hmm. thing that is a little bit different is the tools. <laughs> mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a service designer might like make a whole blueprint of this is exactly mm -hmm. how it's going to map out, whereas a producer is making a roadmap. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to touch on that, actually. What are the kind of tools that... Um, you, you use to kind of help map out and, and communicate and do all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, in terms of production or service design? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, if, like you mentioned, there's different tools, but is there crossover with the tools that you've used in, in both of them? Or, um, or what are the different kind of tools between the two of them? You do get a little bit of crossover when you're dealing with live services more so. So if you're looking at data and analysing how that can apply to what you're trying to do in another update. In that sense, you might be looking at um, building a persona, which isn't as mm -hmm. common in a bigger team as a producer because you're very strictly planning. Mm -hmm. um, you might be making a journey map or analyzing like, okay, this is the life cycle of our game from start to finish. What is, does it look like and how are the players experiencing that? Mm -hmm. And you will be doing a lot of data analysis as well and combining KPIs and things like that. Um, another one is a stakeholder map, something I've mm. done before as well. Like, it's a really good one. Yeah, what is our publishers doing as a service designer? How are our organisations sitting together? Um, and a very key one would be a flowchart. <laughs> yeah. Seems simple, but the amount of, even as a producer, the amount of user journey maps I've done or um, just experience maps, like if I'm trying to think, okay, these are the key levels that a player has it mm. throughout the game, how they're feeling um, and the key moments of the game. But even if I'm just trying to envision how someone would experience the UI and you just build it out in a journey map as well. And do you find a lot of crossover between like game designers would definitely be using flow charts and that sort of stuff to communicate mechanics. Do you find mm. you have a lot of crossover with the, like the, with that discipline or with those people in the team? A little bit. Um, it does depend on the studio you're in. Yep. So at Infinity Plus 2, um, our production team are all pretty multi-skilled, so I might get involved with a little bit of content planning for the game. Mm -hmm. But I think it, if you're in a bigger studio, you're more focused on the planning and thinking ahead. Um, in saying that, yeah, it, it depends on the scale of the studio. Um, but as a traditional producer, you would be doing a lot with a flowchart, say for planning and thinking about how the team is structured. And a designer would be more yeah. specific to the personas, for example. And do, what do you prefer, like having worked at EA and now, you know, what do you find is the differences between the, the big studio, the smaller studio you touched on, mm. um, 
having a variety of roles almost under the same role. Yeah. Do you prefer one or the other or, you know, is there times you get frustrated of <laughs> having to do too much or just wanting to do one thing or, yeah, what are the differences? I think um, it would be interesting to work at a, a double. I think we're, we're technically double A, so like a, a small double A studio. Um, but the, the differences are definitely strong. You notice it, as I mentioned, like working in a big team. It's very clear. Everyone has a very niche role. You might mm. be a physics coder or a UI artist that is specifically just UI, and then you have a UX designer to focus on the UX, as you know the differences. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm. And I think that can be great if you're working on a big project. But I have really enjoyed the challenges of working at a smaller studio in that you get so many opportunities to try different things and it can be a lot quicker to make change as well. So you have an idea, you can execute it. If you can get everyone on board, it's fine. <laughs> That's the main part. So there's a lot more room for change, innovation. Um, it's, it can be more challenging in that sense as an indie dev because you do have to wear a couple of hats sometimes mm-hmm. and it's very fast paced. But I think that teaches people to make quick decisions and to think on their feet and to not take extra long to polish something when you don't need to. And do you find this usually like a lot of um, effort required to try to get those changes through or is it kind of, hey, here's a change that we should make and Mm. it just gets done? I think it depends on the phase of the project. So if you're coming up to a deadline, um, making process organisational changes is not really (laughs) going to be great for the team. And it depends on the people involved as well. So some people are more open and receptive to change. And yeah, I I really think it's a matter of understanding how to work with the people that you're working with and how to adapt your communication to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But on a smaller team, it can be more restrictive if, I'm just assuming from what I've known of other teams as well, you are in a deadline because some might Mm -hmm. have funding that they're really restricted to or... Yeah, if you are at an indie studio and you've only got five people on it and you really need to ship that game, that's like depending on your livelihood. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you you don't have as much time. Whereas if you're at AAA, you can kind of have that safety net of doing a job day to day and take your time to work it through the ideas and yeah. And, And for an aspiring producer or something, you know, someone looking to get into it, um, what are the sort of key skills that you've found that they need to know? You've, you've touched on a few like communication and, and planning. Mm-hmm. Are there any others that are like really important that you found when you, you stepped into that role? Yeah, I think it's a lot of soft skills in production. <laughs> um, a good producer, oh, I could talk about good production all day. There's, there's a lot of things to that, but... <laughs> Um, Yeah, communication and organisation is one. I think a bit of creativity Mm. and adaptability. Mm -hmm. Fun words, all the E's on the end. (laughs) Um, A lot of producers, the ones that I look up to that are very good at their jobs are also creative. They're not Mm -hmm. thinking about doing things in a linear way and it being start to finish. It has to be done like this all the time. And they're not locking themselves into... um, problems in that sense because they're Mm -hmm. able to stop and and they're resilient and go okay how can we get out of this situation what can we do to solve it Um, and that as a soft skill will get you through any situation whereas Mm. you can pick up excel you can pick up Mm -hmm. jira in any time and obviously i think every producer you meet even if they're more of a someone who's come from 
art and they're very artistic, they'll always have a bit of an organisational flair. <laughs> mm-hmm. Having that mm-hmm. desire to um, organise and just categorise in some sense, but just guide and help things be more efficient, I think is what sets a producer apart in that sense. Mm, for sure. And have you, as a like as someone who does, you know, who produces you, um, what kind of games do you actually, you know, <laughs> enjoy? Is it do yeah. you enjoy the, you know, the the tycoon games and the, you know, the organisation <laughs> games, or do you, do you sort of um, just play other kind of games? I, I can't because I get too <laughs> I get too OCD yeah. about it. <laughs> um, so I try to play games more to escape now. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounded dark. <laughs> um, but not not Dark Souls though. That's too yeah. too dark. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I love RPG games, and that's part of the reason I'm at Infinity Plus Two because we do RPG games, and it's great. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, so RPG games, um, adventure, anything with a storyline and anything that really gets you immersed and involved in something. Um, I, it's an interesting question, actually, because I do wonder how many people sort of play games based on their personality. Like, if you're yeah. organised, do you play unpacking? Or <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a classic one. Because um, one, one thing we were talking about um, was how you, the, you just mentioned the RPGs, um, mm. Puzzle Quest 3. That that pretty much comes out um, after you've joined on as the producer. What was it like, basically? Like, was did it feel like you were like in inheriting <laughs> this game and you had a responsibility to it? Because it's a, it's the third one's very different from the second mm. one, and in a positive way, you know, it's <laughs> so many things you can see that it, that it's expanded on. Like, did you feel a like in a good way, like a pressure or like a responsibility mm. or like? What did it feel like to inherit that? It felt like getting um, someone's child in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a game with a franchise behind it and not quite to the extent mm. of, say, I don't know, Star Wars or Star Trek, but because it's so personal to the Australian game dev industry, like everyone in Australia knows Puzzle Quest, most people. I can't generalise, mm. but a lot of people do. <laughs> so having the opportunity to work with that on the studio with the studio is awesome. It was a, a kind of a personal thing in that sense because it's something that people who've played have that nostalgia of when it came around and kind of changed the match three space. So I did feel a bit of um, responsibility in that sense, having to pick it up and go, okay, I've got to make this good now. <laughs> mm. Hopefully everyone will enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what are your like proudest moments or achievements with that game that you can look to and you're like, that was me kind of thing? Or that was the team, you know, and as a producer, I imagine you, you'd be hesitant to say that was me, it was the team, but you know what I mean. Oh, there's a couple of things. Um, oh, so many. <laughs> I yeah. think one of the first moments when we were working on um, the Match 3 puzzle gameplay mechanics was the first thing that came to mind. We'd left the prototyping stage and, you know, everything was very blocky and it was good fun. And we had gotten to this point where it's like, okay, we need to come up with something polished now. We've been prototyping for a while. We really need to put something together, a bit more of a slice of what the game's actually going to look like. And we had our mechanics down pat. So, you know, we knew what we were doing and we thought we'd try (laughs) diagonal matching. Just a weird idea, and it worked. <laughs> and it was that moment where we're all sitting around the table going, so um, diagonal matching is sort of weird, and it, but we kind of like it. Yeah. So we put it in, <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's give it a go. 
And I remember having worked with the team for a couple of weeks at that point, and it was, it hadn't, you know, we'd been in prototyping for a while, but we really had spent a few weeks just sitting and polishing and looking at every little component and going, what can be good? Tweaking that, how does that feel? How does it look? And then when our publisher came over from the US and they had a play and they're like, oh. and then one of them just turned around and smiled and he's like, yeah, this is good. <laughs> Oh, that would have yeah, yeah that's just, and feeling. everyone in the office had that energy of like, oh, yes, this is good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it was that first moment for me of realizing um, as a team and on a project in game dev how exciting the collaboration is. You see everything come together and how people just pull off amazing things. And that's probably the most exciting thing about game dev. Mm. Did it get, um, when you had that like win of the... Um, publisher seeing it, did it feel like it got a bit easier from then? Mm. Like the pressure came off? To some extent. Um, I think if you can get people that you're working with on board, um, and stakeholders, mm. so to speak, especially if they are not already invested in your project and you're trying to pitch, the more hands-on and involved, I mean, if you can in COVID situations, do it in yeah. person, um, the better it is because you're getting them immediate feedback and you're seeing what it's like within the context of the game up front. So I think getting buy-in is really important. So whether it be from other people on the team about what you're working on, um, but also if it's a publisher too and being upfront about your expectations. But I think a lot of the pressure that people experience in a project doesn't come from people just playing the game and getting their feedback. It's also about whether or not you're setting expectations. Are you communicating where the development is actually at in the project or are you just kind mm -hmm. of producing a prototype after six months and not having shared anything? <laughs> so yeah. I think communicating where you're going and how long things are going to take, what's involved and giving people that context, especially for a publisher or another stakeholder is really important. What do you... And what, oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. So, so what, um, with that, what was the... Uh, timeline for the project like was it how many years was that project so we've been in development since 2019 now so we we've okay. been soft launch for a little while I think it's been about a year almost yeah <laughs> so it's been pretty good yeah. yeah and so we had about that time but you know most um, games will always be around that mark if you're a live service game you're getting about a year to two years and what's yeah. what's uh, what was the launch like? It was good. <laughs> How'd it go? <laughs> I remember being on a video call with our pub publisher. Um, I think it was like eleven or twelve p.m. Sorry, yeah, eleven p.m. at night for them, and it was like the little button. Um, we still have our worldwide release coming up this year, so that's the big mm. one. And yeah. I think yeah. setting that expectation with the team was the important part because it wasn't a big launch. It wasn't like pushing the giant red button going, here mm. you go, all bets are off now, have fun. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it was an exciting moment. It was like, oh, great, we've, we've hit a milestone and going, this is the next stage of the project. And remembering that too, I think, especially for people, say, on the dev team, um, coders even who have so many bugs and things to fix and going, well, we, we will have more time. There'll be more milestones to hit and more chances to make changes. Mm. And mm. did you did you find like the development, like was 
you find the development team was kind of, oh, we need to fix all this stuff before we get to this launch? Did you find that that was the, you know, or do you find that that's typically what happens? Or And it's kind of, as a producer, you're like, no, this is what we need to, <laughs> this is the line, like, yeah. don't cross it. This is the bar, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A little bit, yeah. Um, we have a really experienced team and a couple of them had, um, quite a number of them had come from other games that were premium. So it's a one and done. You have... X amount of time, a year or two mm. to make your game and then you hit your code lock and that's it. The bug goes mm. out, it's there. I mean, it's a bit easier now because you can update on Steam and things, but if it's on console, it's there's a bit more of a process with submission. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was a fair bit of sort of taking the time to communicate, okay, this is the launch date for soft launch, but we're going to update it in this time and then mm-hmm. making sure that the team knows, okay, this is the update date, but also this is when we need to finish bug fixing. This is when the art team needs to do their thing. This is when the code team needs to do their thing because it's not the same for everyone. And especially in a 3D game, you're going to have people working at different points in time. So the art team might be doing something for six months down the track. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and how have you found it sort of uh, communicating to the like two different stakeholders is there different do you have to tailor the way that you communicate to the different people and and how do you how do you do that if if that is something you do Mm. i think it's a matter of looking at whether you're communicating up or down and then from there up being it's weird because they're not really above us but (laughs) publishers looking up in the sense of they want higher level information Mm -hmm. and dev team what's the granular details so day-to-day, what am I doing as a dev team? That's what I want to know. What am I working on now? What am I working on next? And what's important? And then as a publisher, it's how is the game going? <laughs> what are we doing this year? What are we doing in the quarter? <laughs> how much are we earning? Yeah. And what are our KPIs and things like that? So taking a moment to think about that level. Um, but also depending on the situation, it does change. So you might have an exec meeting and th- with the publishing team and they want to really nail down one quarter and work out exactly what you're doing and you might need to adapt that communication. But if you're talking to the dev team day to day, it is going to be more specific. It's like, okay, well, let's break down this task now. How long is this feature we're making going to take across two days, one week, two months? And looking at that granular detail. Is that something that you, had to, you found you had to learn? Yes. As you went on? (laughs) Yeah. It's a weird skill. I don't think people really... I mean, maybe there's a course on it somewhere, but I think um, communication is not something that is taught to that sort of specificity. Mm. It's very specific to maybe project management or game dev as a whole. Mm. And it's 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 a weird one. Yeah, Yeah, it's until you get the message back, like TMI, you know, too much information. Yeah. Like, like condense it. (laughs) Yeah. Or you send a really yeah, big yeah. essay as an email and then you never get a response. Or yeah. you're responding to someone on Slack with like a paragraph and they're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks. I'm always amazed with those, like uh, anyone in a producing role, like that would have to, I'm assuming you'd have to have a big mental strain. Like, I don't know, do you, do you guys, is that like a support group for <laughs> producers? Like, you know, like artists have like, groups where we can go like oh look at my thing i'm working on or something like that and like yeah cool i would do it like this but producing it you know as you mentioned it has those soft skills like i mean i can't imagine there's like a 
like a public Facebook group where you're like, oh, I'm having this problem with my program. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, how do I deal with them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, Bob, there is he goes it, again. Is <laughs> yeah, oh, classic Bob. We all know Bob. Is it, um, yeah, is it taxing? It can be. And how do you get through it? I think it's an interesting role um, because as a producer and as a woman, I think we, well, this is not in a bad way, but... Um, we're inclined to do a lot of emotional labour as well and going, ah, oh, hope the team is okay. How is the team health, the productivity, but also how are people feeling? Mm. And making sure that you're aware of that line is really important because at the end of the day, a producer is not HR. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it's a fine line, um, especially as I've seen with other producers at other indie studios, it can be really tough because you, you do want to support the team and set goals and be there to help them, but... Sometimes you have to remember, like, if we had HR, what role would I be filling versus them? And I think mm-hmm. as a producer looking at it as like, well, have productivity is maybe a good indicator. Um, and when the, the work processes or things can be changed to help someone versus, I guess, being a therapist or something like that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Not saying that I've had that experience specifically, but like, I think it's a conscious thing to keep in mind because a lot of producers have fallen into that trap and yeah and it's uh, yeah because i imagine because um like on, on a pure speculation end like the the job the industry it's a creative industry so it's like an emotional connection mm. as opposed to like a i don't know the education industry or something like that like it, or like a more hard cold to put it like accounting or something like that like it's a creative <laughs> yeah. thing you'd for it to work you'd kind of need vulnerable people yeah. in a way like to to be creative to to express themselves and i feel like that would bring along with it kind of what you're talking about of where does the line draw between professional you know a, a, is the team working productively yeah. and um does someone need a hug on the team or something you know <laughs> and i think deciding that on a case-by-case basis works too but yeah you're right it's it's a good point um i think creativity by nature is connecting with other people and it, it's a very mm. emotional, personal experience. So to be a programmer and game dev is a very creative thing. To be an artist, to be a writer, a producer, and you have to take that into account when you're dealing with people. Um, but yeah, we, we do have support networks. <laughs> We've got oh, little good. groups, <laughs> not specifically. But yeah, we have little communities of like producer meetups and things like that. And I think a lot of producers tend to reach out to each other as well, just like, oh, how do I solve this problem? Or what would you do in this situation? Um, yeah. <laughs> Mentoring That's as well. Cause, um, yeah, because yeah, we'd spoken to a, uh, last year, spoken to a producer at um, Wargaming in Sydney. Oh, yeah, yeah Costa, I think it was Sydney. Yeah, yeah. but uh, now, I think now she's at uh, Ubisoft. Uh, Ash, Ash Van Wingard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was a, a, a similar sort of thing. And... Um, that's that's where my curiosity came in with the how did um, COVID impact it because mm. she was telling us that she was you know having those troubles of being like um, how do I get the team motivated and she set up the whiteboard like you mm. were saying and she's like no one's participating in this <laughs> and like what am I doing? she want she was the one that wanted to go to everyone's desk and say how you doing what's yeah. working what's going on and uh, I was in that boat too <laughs> I yeah think, um, yeah there, there are a lot of times where it's just keeping it into consideration. Like not every mm. time you reach out, it, it's going to work and you can't make too many changes at once. 
think taking the yeah. time and picking the right moment is important too. Um, but there's definitely a lot of information over, you know, you're reading a lot of texts and you, you're in meetings all day and you're reading emails. So I think information overload is a genuine concern for a producer or a project manager of any kind. Yeah. What uh, what keeps you in, in game development? Like, you know, you, you've studied UX design mm. and you could so much have easily gone to another you know, to to be a product designer at a at a software company, there's, there's so many jobs like that. Um, what what's kept you sort of in you know the game development uh, industry? Let's or game games industry. Let's say. It's yeah. a good question. It's definitely the feeling of like the joy that I get from collaborating with people. It's that moment mm. of seeing sort of setting a goal, um, working out what the problem is. I think to start with and going okay. How are we going to solve this for the team? Or how are we going to make the game better in this way? And then defining that problem and then laying the plan for it, then being there to see the team through at every point and work with people who are a coder or who's an artist and all these different disciplines and then collaborating and seeing it come together. I think that's just like really exciting. <laughs> mm. this, it's such a cross-discipline process and cross-time as well. There's time zones but also different parts of the project and it's very hands-on and it's very creative as an industry and being able to see that game come to life and then get that um, feeling of it from all of the different players and their feedback good or bad is kind of exciting and there's a whole world mm. out there of them doing their own thing and they're enjoying a game and it's like yeah we did that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome it, it is a good feeling isn't it like uh, watching players like you present a story to them any kind of narrative in the game and you're like this is how it is and they just go alright this is how it is and then they run with it and, and then they, they sometimes they do sometimes they don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was going to say you're, you're dealing with a lot higher stakes than we ever dealt with I mean it depends on the game as well like in live services you're just going to have to take some weird feedback sometimes <laughs> yeah and right. that's kind of the fun of it it's like I sort of joked to my boss once it's like you have a, a whole world an economy and if you change something it's like watching an experiment seeing how people respond yeah. <laughs> in a good or a bad way like you, even yeah. if you're doing a good thing some people hate it and or yeah. what we consider a good yeah. thing they might consider a bad thing so <laughs> have, have you yeah. have you seen that um having made a change in the game and then seeing like mm. maybe not so real, real harsh ne or really harsh feedback but has there been negative feedback and and how have you sort of tried to adapt to that and and try to you know quell those those uh concerns yeah that's a really tricky one um i'm lucky i think that as a producer i have had that experience in community management to know that this is normal to get negative feedback Mm -hmm. Some people um, just like that, doing it. <laughs> and some people are just really blunt, which is good. You need that sometimes. And I think it's important to keep that in mind um, and to explain that to the dev team as well. But then in the position of a game dev to keep in mind, okay, well, this is what the player is saying. This is what they actually mean from their statement. So mm -hmm. sometimes you can deconstruct a post and go, okay, they're complaining a lot about or complaining. They're saying all of this stuff, but at the root of it, they actually just find that the UI is a bit clunky or they did really find the game hard. So mm. getting to the root of the problem, but then taking the time to analyze that against data and looking at 
your mm. analytics and what's actually happening in the game. Is it really that difficult there? No? Okay, maybe they're just having a hard time for some other reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it, do, you, do you tend to try to get that stuff... I mean, there's, there's only so much usability testing and that sort of stuff that you can do. But do you, do you try to do some of that stuff before it uh, gets out and then and uh, and mm. goes into the you know live production? Yeah, for sure. Um, another good part of service design that and UX design and and research in general that comes into game dev is testing. So, more specifically, play testing, um, beta testing, alpha, if you will. <laughs> Um, so we're lucky that we get so many opportunities to do it. So before an update, um, when we get into live services as well with PQ3, I'd love to do beta testing again. And we've done that on our project Gems of War. That's quite common. So being a closed group of players who are already playing the game. Um, we've also done play testing and we've done uh, closed sort of early access as well. So there's lots of different levels you can yep. approach it at, but depending on the stage of the game and whether you want players who are actually familiar with that brand or someone completely new uh -huh. can give you a different bit of information. And do you, do you have, um, do you work on that component as well of that playtesting, or is that another part of it? Yeah, I do. It's good. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I, like awesome. It. Yeah. I don't have and to, but I like getting my hands in it cause it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what do you, what do you like out of that? Um, you know, I, I've, I've, I love usability testing. Mm. Like as a UX designer, I love seeing people use it. And just like you sort of mentioned, even um, the enjoyment of seeing something come out and people use it. Mm. Is that something that like, do you like seeing people stumble and then, or, or, you know, enjoy it and then see how to adapt that? Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the areas of game dev that's being used well at the moment is beta testing, but I think we need to be doing more usability and play testing and mm -hmm. not just keeping those videos within the production or the publishing team, making mm -hmm. sure that the game team gets to see someone. Like I had a really good example in early access. Someone didn't know they could diagonal match for about an hour or two of the game. Well, and mm -hmm. I remember watching that going, oh no, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> and then we saw the same thing. Someone didn't know to cast a spell. And it's a game about casting spells and matching gems. So <laughs> having that, it just someone seeing that video is so powerful because you, I remember hearing the person as well and they're like, oh, what is this? Oh, it's a rat. And just listening to them, it's, it's so fascinating, but also very empowering as a dev to know, okay, I really need to fix that thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and especially like it can help with game design and, and even like it, it cuts across like those insights that you find can just cut across to everything like whether it's a ui thing that changes whether mm. it's a game design mechanic thing that changes whether, whether it's you know all that sort of stuff um do you like how do you try to communicate that across to all the different disciplines mm. good question i think it depends on what you need to communicate as well hopefully the test would have been done with the goal in mind of what information you need. Yeah. So usually we'd go for a report um, and the team would make sure that they've, the testing team or us would make sure we consolidate it. Mm -hmm. I'll usually give the report and write a summary. And then as a production team, it's our responsibility to really look at that and go, okay, what do we actually need to do from this? What's valid? What's just something to keep in mind and share? So usually um, giving people the high level information breaking it down into action items and calling out, okay, you don't need to read the whole report, but this is the key points and we did notice these key themes. 
And that way it's not as overwhelming because if you're a dev team member getting a whole report of like 20 pages of data, it's a bit intense. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting the way like you spoke before about the communication up and down and how you cut back information or provide more depending on what it is. And in this circumstance, it's a developer that actually won't read the, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, like usually that, you know, it's more detailed and that sort of stuff, but it's actually just, they want the key insights, how to fix it, what to do. And they do read the documents as well, but it's a question of knowing what to do with that data sometimes as well. Yeah. So I think calling out what to look at in the report too and where for them to read more into is helpful. Mm. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. And something that we always like to sort of end our podcasts on is uh, a bit of advice that you could give to aspiring producers, mm. people who either want to get into producing or uh, know that they want to and then, you know, where to go and, and what to do. So, yeah, what, what's some advice that you'd, you'd give out to some of those people? Mm. <laughs> That's a tricky one as a producer. <laughs> Um, mm. I think it's really important to remember that, <clears throat> excuse me, no matter the project you're on um, and what you're doing, no one particular method or process is going to work the same. Every team is different. Every game and project is going to be completely different to the last. And I think because of that, it's really important to remember that you're a problem solver. And as I said earlier, mm -hmm. being adaptable. So focusing on Yes, sure, having experience on a game is great. Shipping a game is great, sure. But if you can't build your experience in that area, looking at where you can build your knowledge about anything else, so whether it be Agile or Scrum or UX or service design, and looking at all of those things as tools that you can apply no matter the situation, because the tool is not going to be the same every time, and you're probably going to change the tool and break it in the process as well. So that and remembering... Remembering to adapt to tools, but also that any other experience you have is in any form of organization or communication is still really helpful and valid because an employee is going to look at that and go, cool, they organized a whole football team or a Magic the Gathering tournament or they're really good at communicating and they've been a leader in all these roles and they've shipped one game, great. They've been a leader for 10 years, mm -hmm. that's great experience. They don't need to have shipped 50 million games. <laughs> mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's really great advice. And it's always something that, you know, just to keep learning and to keep finding out and mm. um, expanding, you know, what you know, even if it's not in the relevant discipline that you're, you're in is, yeah, definitely great advice. It's all applicable in some way or another. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's it. Thank you so much, Serika, for coming on and, and uh, being a part of this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to chat to you all. <laughs>